All right, so the name of this podcast is Tasting Wild. I know a lot of you are thinking to yourselves, tasting, like putting something into your mouth and consuming it and flavor and profiles and all that kind of stuff. But Webster's actually defines tasting in a couple different ways. One of those is a gathering of people with similar interests to sample, compare, and evaluate, even debate their own thoughts. Another one which I'm really excited about is becoming aware of something via your senses, using all of your senses to taste something. A good example is like someone that breaks free of something. They're tasting freedom for the first time. All of us as chefs and hunters and gatherers and fishermen, when we get out in the wild, we want to taste everything. We want to use all of our senses to absorb the wild, not only the food that goes into our bellies, but the sights, the sounds, the smells, all that stuff, the touch from grabbing the gun and loading a shotgun or knocking an arrow. So that's kind of what we're going off of on this idea of tasting wild. We're going to get in. Right now there's four chefs on the program. First one is Randy. Uh, we've got John. We've also got Joel. We're going to kind of go into about who we are, why we are, and why we want to be a part of this show. So, Joel, we'll go ahead and start off with you. Appreciate it, man. Guys, first I want to say uh, I'm humbled and uh, very thankful to be with you guys and on this journey and adventure. Uh, but first, uh, for me, um, my name is Joel. Um, I'm known on social media as the home cooking hunter. And what got me started on this adventure is me and my wife, we firmly believe, I've always believed that anybody can be a home cooking hunter. There's a lot of people out there that hunt, but there's not a lot of them that know how to cook the things that they hunt. And so for me, um, growing up with 20-plus years of hunting under my belt, um, I've been around a lot of people. I've seen a lot of different cooks and hunters and, and different uh, – I don't even know the words. But what I'm getting at is is that there's a lot of people out there that are intimidated by – trying to cook wild game uh one because when you get online or when i used to get online i would check it out and i would see recipes but they were so over my head so that became my mission to do simple easy recipes that anybody can cook in their home um so yeah that's me awesome thanks so much randy how about yourself yeah hey uh Again, I, I am equally humbled to be here. I, it's a great opportunity um, for for everyone to get a, get an education. I think from a couple of awesome chefs about just how wild game um, can be a part of, of a lifestyle, and that's what I, I really enjoy. For me, is that um, wild game isn't just you know something that that I do lightly. As a chef, you know I kind of came up through the ranks and uh, would feature wild game a lot. I'd buy whole whole animals whenever I could get my hands on them, and then as a hunter. You know, I've been hunting now since I can remember, um, probably about 25 years or so. And it's just been an amazing experience and something for me. Um, I also kind of want to latch on to the idea that, that you know, while it's great to have the, the truffles and the foie gras and, and those sorts of things when you're eating, um, that's not how I eat at home. And that's so my recipes really reflect that um, you can get great flavors with, with a pretty basic pantry. So I'm super excited to uh, to help people get past that hump of always got to save that one last backstrap for the special occasion or kind of being afraid to cook the game that they get because, you know, wild game has been a part of uh, cooking and cuisine um, before any domesticated animal ever was. 
So it's literally a part of who we are as, as just humans. So I want to help people kind of get back to our roots in that way. Well said. John, how about yourself? All right. Well, I, again, like the other two, I, uh, very humbled to be a part of something like this. You know, I didn't start out thinking, uh, we would start a revolution with, uh, you know, uh, harvesting our game and making sure to, uh, to get it onto the table. But, uh, I started out just wanting to eat good food. I didn't grow up eating good wild game. Uh, I still loved eating it, but man, it just wasn't prepared correctly. And, uh, you know, I, I use simple recipes. Um, I kind of just use things that I like to eat. I like the flavors that I, and I put together. And uh, I think a lot of it is based upon your prep from, uh, you know, harvesting it in the field to butchering it properly, uh, may, make sure there's no contamination. And uh, I think, you know, you can put a very simple dish on the plate. Um, you know, I, I think uh, on social media, people like my page because it, it's something that you can reach into the pantry, uh, you know, pull something out of the freezer and, again, not be intimidated, like Randy had mentioned, uh, of trying to create something other than just the standard bacon-wrapped backstrap or bacon-wrapped anything. So mm. uh, that's where I'm coming from. <laughs> I love bacon. I love bacon. <laughs> mm, Every once that, in a while, you got to go back to your roots and uh, throw something on right. the grill. And boy, man, does it taste good. You got to go back to the bacon. Well, a little bit about myself. My name is Jeremiah uh, from Field of Plate. This is what you you'll notice me on on all social media platforms and all that good stuff. Kind of where it started for me was I was born and raised a bird hunter. Never killed a big big game animal in my entire life. Anything bigger than a rabbit with four legs I didn't take um we grew up shooting dove every single year quail pheasant being from southern california the the deer population is two and a half hours away and you're competing with 3000 other guys in the same small chunk of state land so it was very difficult for me to be a big game hunter so all i ever ate was birds once in a while my my grandpa or an uncle would go and they they'd harvest a deer and they'd bring it back and it was always grilled on the on the barbecue with seasoning salt, and I hated it. Grilled well done, which we all know meat should never be well done. And it kind of ended there with me, just bird hunting. Then six years ago, I found out that I had an intolerance to beef, uh, that I can no longer digest beef properly. And I kind of went to this idea of, like, I'll never be able to eat red meat. Like, kind of frustrated me. And then I was at the archery range getting ready for turkey season. And this old dude was telling me about uh, an antelope hunt in Wyoming. And I was like, I really wish I could afford to go big game hunting. And he goes, dude, it's $30 for an out-of-state deer uh, antelope doe tag. It blew my mind. I called my buddy who's a fireman. I said, hey, do you got this next weekend off because tags are still available? We bought tags. We got in our car we, in his little Honda Civic, and we drove to Wyoming. Neither of us had ever hunted big game. We both had rifles. We got out there, and it was the hardest hunt of my entire life. We ended up getting antelopes on the last day. We threw them on top of his Honda Civic, and we drove to a processor and dropped them off. We got the meat home, and I hated the meat. Uh, it just didn't taste good. And I was like, well, that kind of goes out the window. So for the past five years, I've really been immersing myself in how to do it myself, how to go from field to plate with no one else touching that food but myself learning the ins and outs of pairing flavors with uh, seasoning. So if you get a really sagey antelope, a lot of people don't like that flavor, but you can pair it with garlics and other spices to mellow down that flavor and really enhance it versus dehance it. And I started 
putting my stuff out there on social media. And that's how I've met all these guys uh, through, through talking to them and helping develop them and helping them with their photography, something that I'm really good at. I really enjoy doing is food photography. So being able to help Joel and help John and help the, a lot of these other guys take better quality pictures oh, man. And in turn um, has really started this revolution, as John said, of going from field to plate, being that home cooking hunter, being that wild game chef um, that everyone wants to be, but do it more with our idea that the trophy is the one on the plate, not the one on the wall. The one on the wall is a bonus, but the real trophy that we need to be focusing on is the one that gets put in front of our family and our friends. And that's kind of why we want to start this podcast, to get everyone excited about that plate. Everything else that goes along with that plate is leading up to nothing more than that plate. The experiences, the archery, the, the months of practice, the preparation, the butchering, all that stuff ultimately leads up to what goes on your plate. And that's kind of what we want to do with this idea of tasting wild. We want you to get out there and taste the wild as well as come home and give your family a taste of the wild that you had in just one bite. Absolutely, man. And, and like, uh, you know, on that point, Jeremiah, and I, I know we got something else to get to, but, you know, I think for people that's that's what I'm so excited about this, about doing is, yes, uh, there is something admirable about picking out a trophy animal, so to speak, some you know, a, a big wrecked buck and putting your time and your efforts and, and actually obtaining that animal. That is, an, is a feat and an admirable effort to accomplish but to your point you just made it's what happens after that is the true trophy of that animal all your hard work yeah you get to look at it and it's great and you did it but then to take that and feed your family and consume it that's the true pride and the true trophy that all of us should strive to obtain amen so i know we got we got four chefs here um i got a question for y'all anybody found a good recipe for horns yet because I, uh, I, yeah, I haven't. Um, this is my grandpa always said. <laughs> boil it down so you can't boil it anymore, and then put it on the wall. <laughs> That's it. So I sent out a request uh, a week ago asking for viewers and friends and family and anyone that had a question on wild game from start to finish, from the moment you walk into the field to the moment you put on the plate. And I had over... 100 responses of questions. So I've written them all down. But one key one that we kept getting back to, there was 20 questions that was asked, and it was all about ground meat. Yep. What do you do with a freezer left of ground meat? Because <laughs> we all enjoy eating those steaks. We all enjoy eating the backstrap. We all enjoy eating the heart. We all enjoy eating, you know, smoking up the shoulders. But when you get down to it, like we are right now, we're getting into that time where hunting season starts in a week for a lot of us. Uh, and I know Utah archery starts here in a week. A lot of us start September, October, November. But what do you do when your freezer is just left with ground? And how do you make it taste good? Uh, a lot of questions said, are there any more recipes than just making it into burgers or just making it into chili? And, I mean, I came up with 50 just by myself and put us all four of us together. I think we can come up with a whole cookbook just on ground meat. Yeah, buddy. Um, so real quick, what is your favorite dish? to make with ground anything, venison, elk, turkey, you name it. What is your favorite dish? Who? Anybody. I, Let's jump in. I, hey, this is Randy. I'll, I'll take that ball. Um, so for me, 
I'll take that grind and uh, in lieu of just doing a burger or something like that, I'll uh, often make um, breakfast sausage out of it. And so you, that involves, you know, cutting in some pork fat or something to that effect, uh, usually about 30%. And what I'll do is I'll just take a nice, you know, sagey thing. And, and what that does is really diversifies that, that section in the freezer that's full of, of grind. Because for me, you know, you're right. You just pull it out. Am I making meatballs tonight or am I making, you know, tacos or, or whatever. But then if you have that other section that's just specific, you know, for breakfast applications, it really opens up another meal period to wild game that a lot of people don't think about. Because most times in, in my life in the past, wild game was a dinner time application. You know, you had, you know, your steak at dinner, you know, your elk roaster or whatever it was. So being able to open that up to the breakfast yeah. um, is a real good key. Absolutely. I agree. How about you, John? My go-to, uh, without question, is tacos. Uh, they're simple and easy. They've always been that way. Uh, my mom used to cook tacos with beef growing up. And uh, when I started providing, you know, my family with, with the whitetails that I harvest, uh, you know, tacos were a very easy transition. And uh, when we get tired of tacos, we go to enchiladas or to nachos or to quesadillas. Uh, it's very Mexican and, and that kind of thing at our house is very popular with our ground meat. So that's probably other than the, the ones mentioned, that's the uh, that's the go to for me. Man, here's my take on ground venison because I eat a lot of or venison ground meat in, in general. I eat a lot of ground venison um, in my part of the country here in Tennessee. Uh, yeah, I put ten to fifteen whitetails in the freezer a year. And that, you know, helps sustain me and my family and friends and whatever. So what I put ground venison in, in almost everything that applies for ground meat. Um, and one of my favorite recipes that, I, that I've created was, I don't even know if you can call it this, but I called it a hunter's pie. And it's super simple. It's basically you brown your meat with some salt and pepper. You throw some jalapenos, diced jalapenos in it after it's done browning. You layer a baking dish with some crescent roll dough. Then you do meat, pepper jack cheese, meat, pepper jack cheese. Top that bad boy with some crescent roll dough. Layer you some, uh, lightly baste you some butter on top and bake it for about 30 minutes. And it's one of the, I get my my family, my friends, it's one of the best recipes that I've come up with. But before I finish with that, you know, I take my ground venison, I thaw it in cold water, cut that bag open, I throw it in a bowl, and I bleed out every bag of ground uh, meat venison that I uh, that I grind up. I bleed it out and I, like up to two to four hours. Um, and to me, everyone that I serve ground to cannot tell that it's wild or gamey or whatever word you want to use for that. They just think it's delicious meat. Yeah, bleeding the meat is is a huge, huge, huge part of wild game processing that a lot of people don't understand about. And it's not to bleed it just to bleed it, but it's really to bleed it to take out that that earthy undertone that comes with it. Yes. Like, everyone says gamey, but gamey to me is not a flavor. It's a term that people use that don't know what they're talking about. Thank you. <laughs> um, so thinking about it, it's it's earthy. If you get a mule deer who's munching on – Nothing but roots in the desert. That's what I have. I don't get blessed with these corn-fed whitetails that all you boys do. Amen. I get these. I get these dirty mule deer that are eating cactus and roots. We got those yellow and, acorn trees out there. I don't know. They just keep eating off of them. 
It's yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so I get these these deer, and they have that that musty, earthy flavor to them. And by bleeding the, that ground out for a good eight hours before, now putting it in a bowl is what I usually do. But I also put it in a bowl, and I usually put or I put it in a colander, and then a bowl so that the blood continually drips away from the meat. It's never saturated in it. Yeah. But it really, you'll 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 see that it'll take about 60% of that earthy undertone that comes with the wild game out of that meat. Like I hunt a lot of wild boar here in California too. And a lot of people hate wild boar because it tastes musky. Same thing. Bleed that meat, soak that meat. You get all that blood out of there. It's a completely different flavor. Let me ask you guys, do you guys, when you process your own meat, do you guys typically put any filler into your ground meat? I think I like to go for it. I'll take this one. So uh, I think just just like there's a a transition of a hunter from uh, you know just getting out in the woods, you want to you want to kill something, right? Your first couple years, you just want to kill something, and then it's what implement, what weapon can I kill it with? And then you get to the point where it's uh, you know just getting out there and taking friends out there. Well, I think in the culinary world, it's the same way. So I got to a point where it's like "Ah, I'm a traditionalist, I'm a purist. I'm not going to put anything in my meat. I'm not going to put. I'm not going to cut it with any pork fat or anything of that nature. And what I found is over the years, I quit. I deleted the hamburger, the cheeseburger, out of my wild game repertoire because I could not make a good one. And uh, that's kind of how my journey on on social media as Wild Game Cook came about is I started asking advice for burgers and for ground meat recipes. And what I remember. What everybody basically said is, oh, yeah, cut that with pork fat. They said they mentioned beef fat and things as well. I tempted that. uh, But I'd say what I come down to, to is some good quality pork fat and i do it at about a 15 to 17 percent ratio and man my burgers have never been better uh i still i still portion out some of my ground and i leave it pure for chili for spaghetti things of that nature where the fat really doesn't provide what i'm looking for but uh i do about a 50 50 of all my ground will get about a 15 to 17 percent cut of pork fat and it just makes all the difference and uh that, that's what uh i do here well, John, why do you – why and just for, for my personal information here, like um, what benefit do you think the pork fat gives to your burgers? I mean why do you – I guess why do you feel the need to, to put the fat in there? Like I say, aside from just grinding it up and packaging it and using it in its, its, uh, its entirety itself, using it sure, as sure. cleanness. So – Previously, when I when I was a purist, you know, a traditionalist, and I just had my ground venison burger, uh, it would not last on the grill. I couldn't flip it; it wouldn't stick together. There was no binder there. I tried eggs, I tried breadcrumbs, and man, it just it just did not work. So the fat provides a moisture, a, a binder, a flavor. You know, it provides a little bit of flavor in there. Um, you know, there was a point where I didn't want to cover up the flavor of the venison, and you know, I'm at the point now where as long as it tastes good, you know, whether I'm trying to stay true or I want to add some flavor in there. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I, what I've what I've found is is I've actually almost almost went purely to cooking my venison burgers in a cast iron skillet, and I get it hot. I cook it on both sides. The cheese uh, doesn't get my grill dirty, things of that nature, and it provides a nice juicy burger. And if there's any juices left in that cast iron skillet, oh man, it's so nice to drip your French fries in there, slosh it around. <laughs> oh my! So goodness. I think I think if we look at it, if we continue on with those questions. The number two question on everyone's mind was, why do my burgers dry out? I had 17 questions in the matter of an hour from 17 different people 
why do my wild game burgers dry out? And I think this is kind of a cool topic that we just went right into it. Uh, a couple things that you need to look at, again, like, like John was talking about, adding a fat, uh, adding a binder. Another one is people tend to overcook their burgers, which we can get into. Yep. Um, another reason uh, is they overwork the patty. When you're making that patty, if you overwork it, you actually break down the fibers more than when you're doing a coarse ground like you want on a burger. And you actually compress that and make it slimy and squishy, which will actually make it fall apart, which won't allow it to stay together because you've taken those that, that fiber of the meat itself and continually broke it down. So now it's no longer a coarse ground, it's a fine ground. Another one is people flip their burgers too much or they smash them down or they want to – they watch – Guy, you know, Fieri do it on TV and they smash that burger down, which is a big no-no, at least in all his greases. Uh, Randy, I know you work in a restaurant. You're, you're, a, you're a very good chef. What are your some keys to keep those burgers from drying out? Yeah, we talked about a lot of them. And, and uh, you know, a really cool one that I've just recently started doing is, is your shape, right? Because we've always done those burgers. You make that nice burger patty, and then when you throw it down um, – onto there it kind of shrinks up and you end up with an oval that's you know an inch thick and it's raw in the center right so a cool trick that you can do to to prevent that and then you've got to cook that oval till it's well done all the way through or you feel like you do so you've got dry meat on the outside so instead of doing that when you squish your patties out when you're making them actually make the center of them um thinner than the edges because yeah. it's an meat is inherently going to constrict right that's what happens when you throw it into a pan and it starts rounding up it starts constricting well if that center's thinner and it starts constricting They'll all actually kind of even itself out, and then you can get a much more even cook on it. Um, and that's a, that's the way a lot of those uh, higher end burger places are doing their pressed burgers. Yeah, thinner in the growing growing up, my my grandpa was the grill master. Like that's what people called him. He he had giant barbecues, charcoal barbecues in his backyard, and that's all he would do. Everything my grandpa would do is barbecue. And I learned how to make burgers from my grandpa. My grandpa always said that if you give burger just a little bit of love, it'll love you back. And it's always stuck with me my entire life. My grandma laughs because I was teaching my nephew. Um, we were all at my, at my house. My grandma was down. My, my grandpa has since passed away. I mean, and I remember taking that patty and showing him how to make it. And like you were talking about, Randy, he's making it thinner in the middle. What my grandpa would do is he would take his thumb and he would smash and he would make an X with his thumb in the middle of that burger patty. And what it would allow that to do is like what Randy's saying is when that burger starts to cook, it's going to shrink into that X and actually cook all the way through like it's supposed to without drying it out, without doing it. So, again, showing your burger just a little bit of love, you can keep your fats out. If you, I mean, I, I, I think you do need that binder, but if you keep that out and really show that burger love and don't overwork it. My, my grandpa used to always say, make a meatball the size that you want it, smash it down, give it a little bit of love in the middle, and put it and let it rest. I think another mistake a lot of people do, you guys might be able to agree with me, is they make the burger and they throw it right on the grill. Yeah. Not allowing that, that burger to rest. Um, you can allow that burger to rest at room temperature for 30 to 40 minutes, in, even in the fridge, to really kind of – what's up? I think room temperature is better for it. I've, uh, in my experience, I think that like if you throw it in the fridge – um, and let those things kind of sink back together and let the... Yeah, I mean, either way, I, d I just know that when you cook a meat, when it's been sitting out a little bit, not too cold, it's going to it's gonna cook a little better. Mm -hmm. I know at restaurants, they'll, they'll, they'll pull it out, you know, some of the high-end restaurants that I've worked at, they'll pull it out and let it rest for 15 minutes, 
before they even start before they even get the order. Well, just to kind of get that temperature up a little bit. Here's like you know, I love burgers, and I and I made the the a venison burger my top priority when I first came on this venture with doing the home cooking hunter thing. And believe me, I'm just the regular guy who likes to cook in his daggum kitchen. But from my experience, putting zero filler um, in my burgers, minus some like fried bacon and specific recipes, what I do is, you know, I, I, I make the patty, I dimple it like you guys are talking about by getting it thin in the center. But before I make the patty, I use that. Uh, a, a beaten egg and you know I, I whip it up really good and but I only use for I mean maybe for a pound of venison I'll use half or three quarters of that egg and then after I get it all mushed up and I make the patties it is pretty pliable but I'll take that like you said Randy and I'll put it in the refrigerator about 15-20 minutes and that stiff congeals everything stiffens it up and then jeremiah i pull it out and i let it get the room temp because these leaner meats that i've experienced these leaner meats if you don't let them get to that room temperature it it virtually shocks the meat and that's when you get the venison burger pillowing up like a meatball because you're going from an extreme cold to an extreme hot and when it rests and gets to that room temperature it's a more of a gradual temperature change onto your grill or your cast iron skillet. And I have found that no matter if I put you know, what's a, a bacon or a blue cheese or just a straight burger by itself, if I take the, that process, and I'm not saying it's the exact science way, but if I do that exact process right there, um, I get great burgers. And also not overcooking it. I mean, five, five to six minutes per side max depending on how big the burger you do and only flipping it once on that i say a, a good hot a good hot grill you know hot and fast is typically what i found best with those burgers but going back to what jeremiah mentioned overworking that meat uh, i'll admit I, i'm i'm dead guilty of that uh, mm-hmm. i can see it in the texture of my burgers and and i'm going to work on that this fall about grinding my meat when it's you know semi-frozen um and I think that will that'll make the difference between a lot of the common man's burgers. I think they really probably overwork those patties, and I think that would solve a lot too. Well, let me ask you this, guys. What do you? I mean, um, I just got a Weston Burger Press, and I started making patty. Which basically, you, you get the meat, you roll it up into a two and a half inch ball, put it in the center of that press, and close the lid, and you pull it out, and you got a perfect patty. But you're not having to work that meat. A whole bunch and form it and push it and make it into that perfect little patty you want this little press does it the same so how do you guys feel about uh, uh an inexpensive tool like that in your kitchen for the person that is the a novice uh burger maker uh, I, personally i'm all about it it'll keep two of my plates clean because um, <laughs> that's usually <laughs> what i'm using so if i can uh uh, avoid, you know, making, making more dishes. I'm all, I'm all about it. So yeah. I, I've used those products in the past quite a bit and, uh, you know, they look great. They, they do what they're meant to do. You're not overhandling it. Cause like you're saying, if you overhandle the meat, you're not, you're not making a, a ground meat hamburger anymore. You're essentially, you're breaking it down like Jeremiah was saying, and you end up with almost like a sausage texture. 
and that's not what a burger is, right? Um, right. So I, I, I'm right there with you that using one of those things, a lot less work. You don't get it as hot with your hands. You're not passing that body temperature through to it. So it's, it's, a, lot, it's a lot better in my opinion. And it saves on time. Oh, for sure. No, I, I, I totally agree. I think there's the tools that are coming out now that are so inexpensive really, really help people. But there are those people that say, I'm a naturalist. I'm going to do it myself. Um, I've got those tools in my kitchen. I use them sometimes. I don't use them sometimes. It depends on my mood. It depends on if my wife says she's doing the dishes or not. There you go. Because <laughs> um, if my wife's doing the dishes, then you better believe I'm going to use every single plate that I can use in the kitchen. You jerk. Um, but if I, but if, hey, you know what? Take advantage of your right Yeah, She's buddy. downstairs. There you go. But if I'm doing it myself, I love to just, if I'm making a quick one or two burgers, to do that. So I think, it, yeah, I think, and I, and I think Weston makes great products. Like, I grind all my own meat. Um, I, too, I use a Weston grinder, but I've used other brand name grinders in the past. I've used my KitchenAid with a, with a grinder attachment. By doing it yourself, you really understand how that meat works. A lot of hunters out there, they take their, their kill to a butcher, and they get back a frozen block of meat. And they have no idea what goes into the process. They have no idea how the meat looks when it's coming out of the grinder, what a coarse grinding wheel versus a number eight grinding wheel is. They have no idea about that stuff. So I've had a lot of people with another question is, how do I grind my own meat and, which, and, and how should I do it? So I think that's a good thing for us to kind of finish up on this podcast is, how do we grind meat? How do we take meat and what cuts of meat do we use? Because I know earlier, John, you and I were talking about what cuts not to use, but what are our favorite cuts or what parts of meat? Let's just stick with just straight up deer. I mean, because there's different parts of pig they're going to go in. There's different parts of elk. There's different parts of other animals. But let's stick with a straight white, you know, cow or white tail or a mule deer. What cuts of that meat, of that venison are we going to put into ground? Well, and I'd like to hear his opinions on it. Well, I'll I'll go first. That way, you guys can correct me. Uh, You're wrong. If, no matter what done, <laughs> nope. If you need to, bam. Um, here's what I do. I start when I start breaking down a deer. Um, I go ahead and I decide. Okay, I want. You know, of course, I pull the back strap out and I and I, I put them into stakes. But when I start doing um, the 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 rump of the deer or the front shoulders or and taking out any of the red meat, the neck meat, that kind of stuff, I go ahead and decide from that animal what I want out of that animal. So if I decide I want I want more steak, then what I'm going to do is I basically I really clean my steaks up. So and I'm liberal with it. So if I if I cut a piece of meat off. That that little chunk of meat is going to be going to my ground my grind pile, so I take a lot of my trimmings that I use and I put them into a, a separate bowl and that becomes added ground meat. And then once I get my allotted amount of steak or roast that I want to get out of my uh, or chops whatever out of my uh, my deer, then I take the rest of it and, I, and a lot of it a lot of the stuff that I use for ground is the neck meat, and I use the, the rump of the deer, which is the, the rear hind quarter. Um, I don't do the shanks. Um, I don't like putting all that silver skin and whatnot in there. That's something to me that's got to be cooked slow and broken down um, in order to eat it properly. But um, that's just me. That's the stuff that I use. So let the, uh, the butchering commence. Go. <laughs> How about you, Randy? Yeah, so uh... – question to you on that then joe if that's what you're doing uh -huh. um, which, which isn't bad 
I just want to know how much like silver are you sending through your grinder? Because those chunks that you're talking about cutting off, whenever I think about trimming up my steaks, I'm thinking I'm cutting off silver skin. I'm thinking I'm taking off, you know, other pieces of tendon and stuff like that. Right. Are you sending no. all that back through in your grinder? Is that pretty clean meat you're cutting off and you're making it's pretty, sure you trim all the It's pretty clean meat. I'm I'm pretty O C D about it. Um, you know, I take the the main layer of the silver skin and fat off. I really don't like putting any of the fat from a from a uh, a deer through my grinder. I, I just don't feel like it's palatable to me. But so I, I cut all that stuff off and when I say the trimmings, it's like Yes, there will be pieces of silver skin to make it because I could spend, you know, hours picking every little piece off of it. Um, but when I when I make my steaks into my portions, my three ounce to four ounce steak portions, um, it's the drop off of that. So, so let's talk about silver skin. Some of you might not know what that is. So when you're looking at your at your chunk of meat, you've got that that membrane layer in between, on top, around that's going to cover that muscle. That's going to be your skin on the outside it's that we're talking kind about. Kind of shiny at times. It's, it, it glistens. If you hold it up to a light or put a flashlight, it's going to glisten. It's got a silver tone to it. So we're talking about cutting that silver skin off. We're actually talking about just like when you fillet a fish and you're getting that meat off of that, that scale layer, same exact concept when you're breaking down a muscle. Yeah. You're going to take that same exact knife in the same exact form to get that skin off of there. A lot of times you'll be able to – if you – Freeze that meat up a little bit, put it in the freezer for a couple hours, don't make it completely frozen. You'll actually be able to pull that silver skin off a lot easier versus trying to cut it when it's warm and hot. It kind of flops all over the place. You're making big old chunks and cuts. It's slimy and sticky. There's a million ways to do it. So when we're talking about silver skin, that's what we're talking about for you who are going, I don't know what silver skin is. So back to that. I think we, we all have that idea of we don't want to use the good cuts to go on a ground because we want the good cuts to go on the grill or on, you know, the stove. Mm-hmm. I've always been told that, like, you can take half the animal to process to make your steaks and everything else, take the other half the animal to process it how you want it. So that's usually what I do is I usually split the deer in half or the antelope. They're the same exact body type. I kind of split them in half, and I'll take that hind. I'll take that front shoulder for smoking. I'll take that hind. I'll take half the neck roast for my roast, and I'll take the other half of the animal and pick and pull parts off that I want to. But 40% of that's going to go into my ground meats. So I'm kind of guaranteed to have that because I make a lot of sausages. I love sausages. I love. I even made bratwurst the other night. So I like, to me personally, that's kind of how I look at it is I kind of take that half and really process it down and cut my steaks out of it, and the other half's going to go in. But I also believe in a good grinder. You can use a cheap grinding machine and get cheap quality ground out of it. But if you use a, 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 a grinder that's a little more in the dollar range, it's going to process it so much better. Also, I think all of us agree to have that meat chilled halfway frozen before it goes through the grinder. Yes. And lesson your learned. Lesson learned last year. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I, I like the meat to be, to be, to be cool. And I also take the, all the parts from the grinder and I put them in the freezer while I'm getting everything ready. That helps as well. Having the, the, all the mechanisms, you know, ice cold. Absolutely. I, I, for me, the grinder is the key because using one of those, you know, ones attached to the KitchenAid or, you know, the $89, um, whichever's that you're buying from the store, they're, they're just not going to, they're not going to cut it, um, so to speak. So I like, I come to the conclusion that it's got to be a metal gear, a metal on metal gear system for me to be able to, to crank it through. Because then if you actually over it a little bit, right, you want to still be right. able to 
power it through without you know shutting shutting down your grinder. So right. And I've noticed that when you use a little bit pricier grinder, it will shove that fat or silver skin that you left in there. It'll force that out. Mm-hmm. But if you're using a, a when I used to use my KitchenAid, and a little piece of silver skin would get in there, it would clog up the whole mechanism because it was plastic on plastic. I was trying to force it through, and it would just clog everything up. So now I've got this meatball tube of unusable ground that I have to dump because it's just full of just fibrous skin. I used to use a KitchenAid for years and finally went to a grinder last year, and it made just a world of difference. It cuts processing time. Nothing against KitchenAid. Nothing against KitchenAid. For sure. sure. It cuts processing time down, I mean, by half for me compared to the grinder that we had because I can just, you know, I got three boys. um, I'll be trimming you know, and putting it in the fridge and the other one will be bringing it out of the fridge in, in steps and grinding it. And the other one will be vacuum sealing it. I mean, we can do, you know, we're remarkably fast getting it done. You know, and it's great to see those kids just throwing cold meat through cold processors and um, a good grinder just speeds up that process so much. Absolutely, man. And, and, and keep in mind too, for anybody that's listening to this, that, you know, I know we've talked about you put your money where your mouth is and so to speak. And, and yeah, you're going to get your money your money's worth if you spend more on a grinder, but you know I worked deer with a hundred dollar grinder that I got from Northern Tool for years. You know it would do 175 pounds an hour. Um, is it was it the fastest and the best? You know no, um, but you know I can also I have a Weston grinder now, and you can grab one of those on a, on a good deal for 120, 140 dollars. And and to me, yeah, that may seem like a lot of money, but think about this, guys. Think about how much you spend or would spend um, to have that deer processed, to have that that whitetail you know deer taken to a processor and and processed over here where I'm at, it's going to cost me sixty to eighty dollars for an average size deer to have it processed, and when I I could take that money, put it into a good grinder, and do this myself and get better meat out of the whole situation. Yeah, if you're putting up fifteen a year at sixty dollars each, man. You know, just the the ROI on you buying your own good two hundred dollar grinder. Let's say, you know, you're, you know, if you want a convincing argument for the wife, you're saving money at that point. <laughs> oh, oh, so, believe go, go get yourself a new me. grinder, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, she is. Uh, she's head. She's she's head in, man. She jumped in head first, and she's all about it because she's a dollars gal, and she sees how much meat we have sitting in that freezer, and when she can go out there and get her a filet mignon grade piece of uh, steak and have that for for dinner um that that's what keeps her wanting me to go get out in the woods and you're not bugging her on a saturday morning either so uh, no dude (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean my wife always comes home and she's like oh i always know what wild game dinner we're having because of instagram so it's kind of funny because she works all the time and she just she knows what we're having for dinner but i agree again we're all from different parts I'm from Southern California, so if you say, like, I can't get out and hunt because I live in a very populated area where hunting isn't very accessible, I live 10 minutes from Disneyland. I'm surrounded by freeways. My nearest neighbor is three inches, all right? And I get out, and I do this, and I have a freezer full of meat, and I don't spend a lot of money. Like, I'm, I'm a penny pincher. You can, you can go out and harvest game locally probably more easy than you think. I know Joel's in Tennessee, so he's he's he can go out in his backyard and shoot a deer. <laughs> but don't be scared to get out and taste wild. Don't get scared to get out there and harvest your own meat. Don't be scared to get out there and get your hands dirty because 
if you eat meat, if you go to the grocery store and you buy a package of styrofoam meat, you like that taste. I guarantee that if you get out and do it yourself, that meat will taste 10 times better than any steak you've ever had in your entire life. Yes. That's it. That, that, that fish that you caught will taste 10 times better than any fish you ever got in a restaurant because you did it yourself. Absolutely. Like my grandpa always said, if you grow a tomato on the vine, it's the best tomato you've ever put in your mouth. Same thing goes with a deer or a wild boar or a duck or even a, a dove. Dove season starts here in two weeks. Yeah, man. I mean, you put a dove in your mouth. It's the best bird you've ever had in your life because you did it. So thanks again for being on the program, guys. We'll be doing this again. Uh, please submit your questions. Please let us know if any of this made sense or if you have more questions on ground that we didn't get to. I guarantee you there's a thousand things we didn't do. But we'll kind of do a little send-off. Randy, we'll start with you. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I didn't tag myself earlier on the social media stuff. So I'm uh, the chef in the wild is what they call me. You can get my book on Amazon. I'd love for y'all to uh, take a look at that or uh, find me on Facebook. It's just uh, Randy King, uh, chef in the wild. So that said, though, tasting wild to me, um, like you were saying, that experiential moment of going out and doing it yourself. Start small if you're out there and you're new to this hunting world. Um, go find frogs. Go do something with those. Um, Find a local group that you can get involved with because people want to actually take you out. The more the hunters that we have, the more powerful force we are across this country. And the more people we have eating wild, organic, free-range um, meat, the better off we all are. So thank you very, very much, and I'm stoked to be a part of Tasting Wild. Awesome. How about you, John? Yes. Uh, dig the name. Uh, we've only skimmed the surface on what is so many simple techniques to improve uh, you know, improve or introduce you to wild game, uh, wild game cook on Instagram. Uh, I do have a, a Facebook page, wild game creations. Um, looking forward to, uh, growing with all of you and, uh, growing the community of, uh, wild game cooks. Bring it home, Joel. Yeah, buddy. Guys, this, this has <laughs> been, this has been fantastic. Um, you guys who are listening, you can check me out at homecookinghunter.com. You can check me out on Facebook, Instagram, and also on YouTube where you can. I've got some cooking videos that uh, might make you laugh, but you also get a pretty good uh, recipe out of it as well. Uh, and again, I'm going to throw a shameless plug in here. I'm going to be on the Hunt Channel with the Heartbeat TV doing uh, the kind of stuff that we're talking about on this show. And... I agree with every single one of you guys. We're only skimming the surface of a, of basically a revolution of showing people that there's more to hunting than just the kill. You can you can provide for your family, and like Jeremiah said, there's nothing more gratifying than your blood, sweat, and tears into that animal, into that fruit, or into that fish. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on. And just so everyone knows who's listening. On this program, we already have lined up some amazing special guests who are huge, huge, huge in the hunting industry. We've got manufacturers. We've got backpack producers. We have big-name bow hunters, rifle hunters, processors, big-name chefs. So stick tuned. Uh, stay tuned to what we're doing. Uh, keep listening. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, hit us up. Again, you can also find me at FromFieldToPlate.com, FromFieldToPlate, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that good jazz if you want to learn anything else. Let us know, but for all that, we're out. See you next time. <laughs>